0: On Tuesday morning, January 24th, 2006, in Orlando, Florida, a 24-year-old woman's reported missing when she fails to show up for work. Police respond to her residence. They find it empty. They find her car missing. But they find little else. The question that's lingered for over 11 years since that day... What exactly happened to Jennifer Kessie?
1: You sent me this story and I started reading about it. It's one of those things you see missing person stuff all the time, um, which is sad in in and of itself. But this one just struck me so much because A, the proximity to where I live and
2: where I'm from and the fact that I had never heard. Because realistically, I believe we're still in the same place that we were on January 24th, 2006. So we're still waiting for that one person to come through with the one bit of information that could bring Jennifer home. This is Unconcluded. What
0: happened to Jennifer Cassie? I'm your host, Sean Gerd. The question that's baffled investigators in Orlando for over a decade is what happened to the ambitious 24-year-old financial analyst Jennifer Kessie in January of 2006. That's the question that we are going to spend our time and efforts on over the course of this season. We're going to analyze and investigate all of the events surrounding Jennifer's mysterious disappearance. This is a well-known story to many, but it's a story that needs an ending, whatever that ending may be.
2: It doesn't matter, at least to this father, what condition Jennifer is in anymore. I, I, I hate to say that and maybe my family feels different, but it's time for Jennifer to come home.
0: Jennifer's family understands, as her dad just shared, probably what most of us are likely thinking, that the end of this mystery won't be a happy one. But that doesn't mean it doesn't deserve an ending. As we begin this journey, you will find that most things about this case have a lot of possibilities. Our goal is to narrow them down. When Jennifer disappeared, it's believed that she was wearing a diamond necklace with three stones, representing past, present, and future. The present has been an agonizing 11 plus years for those closest to her. The future has been all they can hold on to. It's been way too long. Even as the days turn to weeks, weeks to months, and months to years, her family has never stopped believing that there are answers. And so do I. That's why you're hearing my voice right now. There is someone, or perhaps something out there, somewhere that holds the clues to this case. In the time since Jennifer went missing, there have been thousands of tips and dozens of searches. But here we sit all these months and years later, still asking, what happened?
2: Who's ever taken her? Ten years is a long time. Wh- whatever reason you may have had ten years ago to take a human being, which just cannot even come into our minds, we can't, we can't even think of that. Your usefulness for what you took her for, it, it has to be done. It has to be over. And if you've done something with her that she's no longer with us, please give, give us the opportunity To bring Jennifer home where she belongs. That's
0: Drew Kessie again, Jennifer's dad, at a press conference that was held in Orlando on the 10-year anniversary of her disappearance. He's still saying the same things he said a decade ago. Jennifer Kessie has been in the news for a long time and way beyond the local paper. This case was and is national news. Much of this has been through the efforts of Jennifer's family, mostly her parents. They've done an amazing job of keeping the awareness and coverage of this tragedy alive. They stood on a street corner in Orlando holding signs and passing out flyers for months. They've done countless interviews, TV shows, and other media engagements. But even with that, all of that, so many people aware of this tragedy, just a year ago, I had never even heard of it. let me take a step back for a second. I grew up in Florida. I'm recording this show, right now, just a few dozen miles down a stretch of Interstate 4 from where the events of this case unfolded. I've spent my entire life here, and I've been to Orlando more times than I care to admit. I'm pretty familiar with the area. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I was within just a few hundred yards of Jennifer's condo, the last place she was known to be, way back in January of 2006, the time of her disappearance. I should have heard of her I'm 35 years old just a little younger than Jennifer I grew up basically in the same place she grew up and I still live here and I spent way too much of my time from around 2004 to 2007 in Orlando it was the halfway point of a long-distance relationship I was in with the person who's now my wife and sadly I'm not the only one who wasn't aware
1: So, when you sent me this story and I started reading about it, it's one of those things you see missing person stuff all the time, um, which is sad in uh, in and of itself, but this one just struck me so much because, A, the proximity to where I live and where I'm from, and the fact that I had never heard of it before. I'm the same age, basically, as Jennifer Kessie, and... This was the first time I'd ever seen it, which is crazy to me because I've been in Orlando a hundred times. I never saw any of the flyers, never saw any of the billboards, never, never noticed any of that. And that sort of bothered me in a way. Like, how the heck did I not see? How did I not hear about this? they've, They've been on the news. They've had television shows about it. And yet I still didn't know about it. So that sort of intrigued me in a way, especially after.
0: That's my friend Scott. You heard that same clip in the intro. He and I have been friends for something like 20 years. We grew up in the same hometown, not far from where Jennifer spent her youth, and less than a two hour drive from Orlando. But it's not just me, and it's not just Scott. Pretty much everyone I asked, friends, family, coworkers, were all completely in the dark about this horrible event. Some of which live or did live in Orlando. At first, it struck me as odd. How have we lived our lives, this close to where the event took place, and never heard of it? But it's been over 11 years. Memories fade. Maybe I had heard of Jennifer, had seen one of her billboards, and just forgotten. Or maybe, like many others of my generation, we no longer consume our news in the same way as previous generations. Newspapers and network news, it's been replaced by internet and social media, I don't know exactly why this was all new to me, why it was completely unaware, but it made it stick with me. I had no intentions of ever making a podcast about Jennifer Cassie, but I've continued reading and researching the case. It's incredibly sad, but at the same time, it's so compelling. And through it all, I haven't been able to stop thinking about how, if I had never heard of Jennifer, there were others out there that hadn't either and they needed to. Maybe people that have information that could lead to a break in the investigation didn't realize they had this information. So even though this story's been told seemingly a 100 times, maybe it was worth telling and investigating Jennifer's story just one more time. Jennifer's family deserves an end to this nightmare, one way or another. Now before we move on, I wanna be clear. I am not a podcaster. I'm not a professional investigator. I'm not a reporter or a journalist. I'm not a law enforcement officer. I'm not anything that would make me an expert. I'm simply someone who was first introduced to all of this just over a year ago and simply couldn't put it down. You heard from my friend Scott earlier. He's helping me produce this podcast because he feels the same way I do. That the facts, evidence, and details of this case, they're worth another look.
1: It seems like it should be such a straightforward thing, and it's not. And that's what sort of hooked me on trying to find information out about this and trying to, you know, sort of put you down a little bit of a rabbit hole. You get looking into stuff, and a lot of it's just, the same stuff over and over that you read online. It's the same thing. No matter what site you go to, you read sort of the same stuff. No matter what videos you watch, you sort of see the same stuff. And In my opinion, and I think you agree with me on this, there has to be more to this. There has to be more out there. There has to be more people to talk to that can help open this up a little bit more. Because it seems like it's, at this point, it's the same stuff over and over. It's the same things being repeated. It's the same evidence, it's the same, everything.
0: You'll hear a lot more from Scott as our investigation unfolds. We'll discuss our findings, the facts and theories, and everything that we dive into about this case. But for this show, I kept thinking, how do we start this journey? It only makes sense that we start with what we know and lay out the facts. There is so much, and at the same time, so very little to this story. If you're familiar with the case, this may be a bit of a review for you. But if you, like me just a year ago, aren't, you're going to want to pay attention. The facts of this case, few as they may be, are perplexing from the start. Over the course of the season, we will break down each aspect of Jennifer's disappearance, but on this show, we're going to look at an overview of the events. The timeline of Jennifer's case begins on Sunday, January 22, 2006. Jennifer and her boyfriend Robert return from a four-day trip to the Caribbean island of St. Croix. Jennifer spends the night at Robert's home in Fort Lauderdale, as she's done before, and then wakes up early Monday morning, around 6 a.m., to drive directly to work in Ecoe, Florida, which is roughly 15 minutes away from her home in Orlando. She has a regular day at work and leaves to head home at about 6 p.m. Jennifer drives home to her new condo. She's lived there since November. It's a former apartment complex that's now being converted into condos. It's called the Mosaic at Millennium. It sits just steps from Orlando's Mall at Millenium. And it's a nice place, too. It's gated, it's pretty much brand new with the renovations, but it's still undergoing an extensive renovation. There's still a lot of construction. That night, she has phone contact with her mother, her father, and her brother. Her brother speaks with her about returning the phone of a friend of his. You see, while Jennifer was on her islands trip, her brother and two friends stay at her condo, one of which accidentally leaves his cell phone. Jennifer agrees to mail it back. Then finally, she speaks on the phone with her boyfriend Robert, as they do every night right before bed. This is just about 10 p.m. Her parents and boyfriend have since reported that in their conversations with her, everything seemed normal. but this was the last time anyone heard from Jennifer. When she failed to show up for work the next morning, she didn't return phone calls. Her employer notifies her emergency contact, her parents. Their texts and calls to Jennifer's phone go unanswered as well, directly to voicemail. It's clear her phone is turned off. her family becomes immediately worried and begins making their way to Orlando. Jennifer's boyfriend, Robert, has also been calling and texting her that morning, but more of the same. The calls are going directly to voicemail. This is especially odd, as Jennifer always called or texted with him each morning. On their way to Orlando, Jennifer's family have the complex manager at her condo building check on her residence and car. Her assigned parking space is empty, and nothing seems amiss in her condo. It's unclear at exactly what time, but Jennifer's parents do contact police. Unfortunately, they don't take her disappearance seriously. They tell her parents that she probably had a fight with her boyfriend and would return later. Her family knew this was not the case. They also call and check with local hospitals, but they don't have any luck. Jennifer's brother arrives at her condo around noon and immediately begins looking for her. An hour later, her parents arrive. Upon entering her condo, everything seems normal. Everything except Jennifer has completely disappeared. A wet towel and water in the shower indicate that Jennifer had showered for work. Her ruffled covers and laid-out clothing confirm that she'd slept in her bed and gotten dressed. Her makeup is out on the counter. Her hair dryer is as well. There's some nighttime clothing on the bathroom floor. There's no signs of a struggle or anything to indicate foul play. All signs seem to indicate that Jennifer had dressed for work and left. Later that afternoon, Jennifer's family begins distributing flyers with her picture to passing motorists and local businesses, anywhere they can think of. And it was just after this, finally realizing the serious nature of her disappearance, the Orlando police start their search sometime between 5 and 7 p.m. While all of this is going on, at just about the same time Jennifer's brother was arriving at her condo, something else was happening, just over a mile away from Jennifer's house. Something no one would know about, until two days later. At around noon, Jennifer's black Chevy Malibu. Is parked by an unidentified person at another apartment complex just down the road. This wouldn't be discovered, however, until January 26th. The car was discovered after a resident sees the car on the local news. They call and say that a similar car has been parked in front of their house. The car is identified as Jennifer's. It's parked at the Huntington on the Green apartment complex just 1.2 miles down the road. Police are able to use a tracking dog to trail a scent from the location of the car, and it leads all the way back to Jennifer's condo. It appeared that whoever had ditched her car returned to the Mosaic at Millennia. And that's where any trail goes cold. Over a week later, on Saturday, February 4th, which is actually 12 days later. Law enforcement releases two photos of a person of interest. They say that this person may have seen the person driving Jennifer's car. The photos have been retrieved from the cameras at the -the Huntington-on-the-Green complex. But later, this person would be declared a suspect. It's actually revealed they were the person driving the car. Security camera footage captures the suspect, parking her car, getting out, and casually walking past the pool. Unfortunately, even on the video, their face isn't revealed. That person is still unknown to this day. And that's it. For the most part, that is all the evidence the investigators had to go on in this case. As I alluded to earlier, the police settled on a conclusion that the incident most likely had taken place the morning of January 24th. That Jennifer had slept in her bed, woke up, gotten ready for work, locked her front door, and was abducted on her way to her car. And everything I'd researched seemed to indicate the same. That seemed like a plausible explanation. To this day, Jennifer's parents and law enforcement still seem to stick to this general timeline of her disappearance. But as I researched this case, I found something else, a fact that was corroborated by her parents, and something I found to be extremely important to establishing a proper timeline. At 10.40 p.m., Monday, January 23rd, the night before she was reported missing, Jennifer's cell phone was powered off, and presumably, the battery was removed. So did she get ready for work and walk out her door that morning before being abducted? Or did something happen the night before? What could possibly explain this? We've got to look at this timeline again. And we will. Next time. On Unconcluded. Thanks for listening to our first episode. If you liked the show, you can subscribe, rate, and review. We're a brand new show, so every little bit helps. Also, if you're unfamiliar with this case, you can check out photos of Jennifer and other things related to her disappearance on our website. We'll make a blog post to go along with each and every episode. The website is unconcluded.com. We're just getting started. For episode one, we only wanted to lay out the existing details of Jennifer's disappearance. That's why it was only maybe 25 minutes. But starting next time we're going much, much deeper. This season, we are going to take this case step by step, fact by fact, and suspect by suspect. We're going to leave no stone unturned. We're going to research old evidence, search for new evidence, reinvestigate, and talk to people who are involved in this case. And we're going to do it all in real time. This coming week, I'm traveling to Orlando. I'm not sure what will come of my trip, but there's a few things I'm tracking down. We will be back with episode two, two weeks from now. But before I'm done, I do want to say that this podcast isn't about me or us. It's about
2: Jennifer and her family. And it's really about you too. Jennifer needs you. And Jennifer needs the public more than any time before. Because we know more than one person knows what happened to Jennifer 10 years ago. We know that.
0: Jennifer needs you. Drew Kesey believes that, and so do I. We want to talk to you too, and we want to do that right here on this show. Do you have something to add, a thought, or a theory of your own, a question about the case? We're making it easy for you to share those things. You can call our voicemail line at 321-710-6304, or send us an email at unconcludedpod at gmail.com. We're also on social media. You can find us there, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all with the same username, at Unconcluded Pod. Ultimately, we want to move this case forward, and that's going to take you being part of it. Until next time, I'm Sham Gerd, and this has been Unconcluded. Unconcluded is produced by Scott J. and myself. Music in this episode by PC3. We'll see you in a couple weeks.